and welcome to another great episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. As if 2020 wasn't a crazy enough year to begin with, the past few weeks have seen enough high-profile and high-impact events to last for at least several years, and needless to say, the utility industry is feeling the effects. From extreme heat waves and market issues resulting in the first set of rolling blackouts in California in nearly two decades, a derecho in the Midwest, to a pair of hurricanes simultaneously bearing down on the Gulf Coast to tropical storm Isias, making its destructive presence felt in the Northeast, the summer months have thrown curveball after curveball at the utility industry that was already doing its best to manage COVID-19 and its economic fallout. While each of these situations was unique in cause, scope, and impact, our guest today thinks a common thread may run throughout the potential solutions to ensure grid resilience. Kyle Haas is Program Manager of Smart Energy Solutions at k Engineering Consulting. Specifically, Kyle manages his firm's Program for Distributed Energy Resources, or DERs, and it's these DER solutions that he says can provide the type of grid resilience and reliability that could have prevented rolling blackouts in California and offered quicker ways to get the lights back on in the areas ravaged by recent hurricanes and tropical storms. I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe and Community Ambassador for Energy Central, coming to you from New York City. And joining me from Orlando, Florida, is my colleague, Matt Chester, Community Manager for Energy Central. Matt, are you excited to chat with today's guests? It's hard to think of a more timely topic these days than DER, so absolutely, I'm eager to hear what he has to say. Me too. But before we bring Kyle into the podcast booth, let's give a quick shout out to the sponsors who are making today's episode possible. To West Monroe, West Monroe works with the nation's largest investor-owned utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to preparing a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise covering topics including aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployments and industry disruptors like DER and cybersecurity. To ESRI, an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, WebGIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Guidehouse, formerly Navigant Research, a premier market research and advisory firm covering the global energy transformation. And to Hancock Software, streamlined commercial and residential energy efficiency retrofits, Their customers deliver more than double the number of retrofit projects with the same energy engineering staff. When talking about DERs on the grid, we're talking about any number of assets that can assist in allowing supply to meet demand in a flexible manner outside of the traditional utility-scale power plants. DERs can refer to physical on-site assets like generation from solar panels, energy storage solutions that can charge and discharge at strategic times, or even virtual assets like incentivizing certain groups of customers to reduce or time shift their power use. As the DER program manager for KNA Consulting, Kyle Haas helps lead territory-wide initiatives in the deployment of DER assets and DER programs as a way to enhance the flexibility and reliability of the grid, as well as to provide a boost towards utility decarbonization goals. As a member of Energy Central, Kyle recently shared his thoughts on how regulatory action to allow for greater deployment and incentivization behind DERs is one of the key pathways that is needed to prevent future rolling blackouts in markets like California. 
arguing that all resources, whether utility-owned generation or virtual DER programs by third parties, should be adequately compensated for the value that they could offer the grid, citing the DER task force currently under discussion in Connecticut as a great example. I'm excited to hear more about the potential of DER, so let's waste no more time in bringing on our guest, Kyle Haas. Kyle, welcome to today's episode of Power Perspectives. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate the invite and super excited to talk about the topic today. Kyle, as an advocate for DERs as a means for grid resilience, grid decarbonization, and overall flexibility, can you share with us how you would rate the current state of the DER market across the United States power sector, and what grade would you give the current market penetration? That's a great question. And to start, my background and how I approach these problems is from a perspective of energy system transitions. And this is the study of how our society transitions from one energy system to another over long periods of time. So if you start with the premise that we need a more resilient, affordable, and sustainable energy system, which I do, then the data clearly supports the system that have DER. While DER aren't the only answer, I am a proponent of allowing them to compete fairly to provide the same public good that utilities are providing very reliably today. Currently, the market provides a lot of misaligned incentives like net metering when more effective price signals are available and could ultimately be a better solution and potentially generate more or more appropriate revenue for those DER. So, I think that poorly aligned incentives are really starting to show their age and they're starting to show the negative impact that they're having on the grid. And examples that are happening in California can ultimately be pointed to as, as successes, but, but something that's maybe a little bit out of date. So I'm really excited about the dialogue that's going on across the country and you know, really excited to contribute to that conversation today. As mentioned in the intro, we pointed to the DER task force that is part of Connecticut's current grid modernization proceedings. Assuming there are specific states, markets, or regions where the state of DER is ahead of others, what do you think has set them apart? Is it political leaders more willing to adapt? A geography that's more willing to certain DER solutions? A population that pushes for these forward-looking solutions? Or something else? So I think it's all of the above, right? And maybe that's a cop-out answer, but it is maybe the right one. A successful energy system transition is ultimately dependent on the conditions of the local climate, the community, and the framework that the elected officials put in place. Academics who study these types of transitions can point to New York's most dramatic revolution from an energy standpoint, really starting with the commissioning of Edison's Pearl Street Station, And then really looking to that in just a few years, the blacking out of certain parts of the Manhattan sky due to competing suppliers laying lines or or stringing lines. There was a technology revolution. That technology revolution ultimately was paired with sort of a business and and commercial solution and, and things changed very quickly. So the rules had to change very quickly. Looking at the local environment, if you're a community that has a really great solar resource, and by that, I mean the sun shines a lot and it shines directly, then you're, you're going to really rely on solar because that's the most obvious solution. If you're someone who's maybe in the Midwest or if you're down in Texas and your community has you know, an excess of, of wind power, you would want to build that solution around wind. But the beauty is no matter where you are, there is some renewable or distributed resource 
that you can take advantage of based on your local community, right? So the way that I approach these, these types of situations is A, kind of look at what's happening in the environment, right? Is there a lot of wind? Is there geothermal resources, right? If you're out in Idaho or if you're in Iceland, right? Like you don't have to worry about any of these problems. You can probably get really cheap, clean, 100% renewable energy from geothermal resources. That's not available everywhere. So what we have to do is we have to tie the economic and regulatory incentives on one side to the technologies and the communities and the way that they use their power on the other side, and ultimately make the economic incentives and the economic signals point towards that, that vision or that solution. And if we do that, ultimately, I think we'll be in a much better situation. Now, Kyle, you mentioned a lot of the opportunities that are local in nature based on the inherent geography and maybe the role that the local markets and regulators can play, but is there a role for the federal lawmakers or regulators like FERC that can or should come into play here as well? Absolutely. FERC can be a major enabler and they can also be a major barrier. And I feel like FERC is dangerously close to becoming a barrier to these types of system transitions. And from my personal perspective, I think that may be that there are some preconceived notions that are based in 20th century realities of technology. So what I mean by that is uh, if you go into the decision with the assumption that solar is more expensive than coal, well, then ultimately you're going to come up with a different solution than is reality in Arizona, because we're seeing the decommissioning of coal resources and, and replacement of them with two and three cents per kilowatt hour power purchase agreements from solar. So what we need to do is we need to figure out how to align those incentives and ultimately to, to leverage the resources that are there. The federal government plays a critical role in setting the stage. Every community, every state is ultimately going to be the best place and structurally is going to be the place to make decisions about the way that their utilities are structured, the way that incentives or disincentives are placed. And, and I really believe in that process being at the state and local level, because right through through the election or appointment of commission officials, I, I believe that that is very important so that you can customize to that local geography and that local community. But I think that FERC and the federal government obviously set the stage for all of it. Kyle, let's pivot the discussion to why you're here today. You've suggested that a market that more adequately compensated DERs might have been able to prevent the rolling blackouts that California recently experienced during their extreme heat wave. How exactly would DERs have come into play in that scenario? So I'm a proponent of providing clear and accurate incentives for all technologies. And I think right now there are, in California, incentives to put solar panels everywhere, which is great. But potentially to maximize the value of your project, you would face that solar panel south. That's a misaligned incentive because that type of duck curve contribution, that type of misincentive is contributing to that problem, right? So that's, that's a, an instance where, yes, DERs, I still believe, are an important part of the solution, but they're being provided not quite the correct incentive. So how would we solve this problem and what is the solution? I think the incentives should be less focused on the actual technology and the development of that technology in the marketplace and should be more focused on the performance because I think we've reached that place. So again, if we provided a more clear performance incentive that allowed and promoted developers to install solar panels facing southwest instead of south, 
ultimately that will give us a few more hours of productive solar production and smooth that duck curve, right? So I've said something very general, which is I think they should provide a more clear incentive. What does that mean? So if you provided a type of time-based rate for your solar production and you provide a higher rate at the key hours in the afternoon and evening when air conditioners are going on and people are coming home from work and everybody's turning on all their air conditioners and appliances at the same time, if we provide a really clear two-tiered rate structure that provides less of an incentive to generate during the middle of the day when everyone's at work, I think those types of incentives are much more of a direct incentive for the customer to make the choices that we want them to make and ultimately to improve the resilience and reliability of the grid. So if we do that effectively, we'll be installing more solar panels with battery storage. If we do that more effectively, we'll be installing panels in a more intelligent way. And again, I think whether, whether it's California or addressing the duck curve, or whether it's in another state and it's trying to provide incentives for the reduction of peak demand through demand response. I think those types of real-time incentives, both through the utility and through other incentive means that the commission can come up with, uh, I think those are, are really the programs that we're finding are successful. And ultimately where it is the most successful is when these projects are, and these programs are rolled out in lockstep with the utility and the utility planning process. But uh, that's, that's really how this translates from the micro level, which is providing a direct incentive to an individual customer to make a choice to, for example, make their panels face southwest instead of directly south, to the macro level, which is how that impacts the grid and reliability. Okay, but if blackouts are so devastating, and if people are so upset about them, and if DERs really can help prevent this from happening again... Then what are the next steps and what should the people of California and any other state that's affected by blackouts or, or storm events that cause blackouts should be looking to ensure happens next? Sure. And to build off of some of the discussion that we had earlier regarding new incentives, new structures and clear programs, I believe that Californians should be asking their regulators for these types of regulatory solutions, these types of programs. And, and as that happens, you're going to see people getting interested in new technologies that are cool, quite frankly, right? So stuff like microgrids. So, you know, we've really been talking about how DER can contribute to reliability on the macrogrid, but concepts like microgrids as solar and storage have become more cost effective. These technologies are being rolled out so that the vision that we had when we first rolled out solar panels, which was if the lights go out, I can still rely on my solar panels, on my DER. That vision can now be realized with the fact that battery storage is becoming A, more and more cost effective and B, more effective in the marketplace and performance. So as we are aggregating these technologies and bidding them into wholesale markets, we're finding new revenue streams. We're finding new ways that they can contribute both to the local market and the macro market. And ultimately, that is going to transform the market just through consumer demand, right? So if you build it, they will come. If we, as an energy market, create microgrids at a cost-effective and cost-competitive rate that aren't inconvenient, that are easy to snap out and stamp over and over and over again, we'll be able to lower those soft costs. We'll be able to make them perform more. 
build better confidence in the public, and ultimately they will demand these types of solutions. And that is what a real system transition, and that's what a real market transformation looks like. Kyle, let's pivot for a moment regarding what's going on in California a bit more. We're all aware of what's going on in the, the infrastructure and the fires that are taking place. Can you share a bit about this topic? And your prescription for this issue may surprise people, but should not sound so foreign as this has come up in the past whenever there's massive wildfires. Please elaborate on your, your thoughts around this. Sure. So in California, the process has been to stop every wildfire as it starts, minimize the damage and contain. That's an overgeneralization, but that's the logical approach that if you don't have a lot of wildfire experience, you would probably take. The big picture is that while it seems contrarian, the right strategy actually means more good fires, which will then result in less massive bad fires. So here's what I mean by that. Poor forest management practices are why we are here. It's really not under debate. In preventing the small, generally harmless and natural fires that cut down on the tinder that starts to accumulate over years and years uh, of stopping this natural process, it ultimately turns us into a very vulnerable scenario. So as we create more and more wood product that naturally would cycle by burning off, and charring through naturally occurring fires. Today, what we're doing is we're preventing those fires from cutting down, especially in California. So the practice in much of the world, and ultimately this is not a new practice, it's been done for hundreds or thousands of years, truly, is to help promote healthy, clean fires that then bring back fresh growth and to do that in a way that doesn't promote massive, massive wildfires. So the challenge here is we need to find a way to manage our forests in a more sustainable way. And that means bringing data and that means bringing real integrated planning processes to the table. So how do we do that? We bring everyone to the table in the planning process and we consider managing our environment holistically. Here's what I mean by that. Today, utilities go through their planning process generally without a ton of input from fire or forest management. That needs to be an integrated and open process. So what I would recommend moving forward and what the scientific community has recommended is strategically starting fires so that you can cut down on California's current stockpile of tinder between 4.4 million and 11.8 million acres need to be burned in California. This historically was done on an annual basis, that between 4.4 million and 11.8 million acres burned every year in prehistoric California. So between 1982 and 1998, California intentionally burned 30,000 acres per year. Between 1999 and 2007, that number dropped to 13,000 acres. When you tie this together with the historic droughts that have occurred in the past few years in California, that means we have a giant tinderbox in the state. So in order to restabilize the ecosystem in terms of fire, California would need to turn 20 million acres of backwoods to ash, an absolutely terrifying prospect 
that would take immense coordination, preparation, and response. This is the size of Maine. We're talking about burning the size of Maine. And, and it is a very scary and challenging prospect to take on. But ultimately, taking this task will leave the environment in a better state. Well, there's a lot there, Kyle, and it certainly deserves its own session or podcast to discuss <laughs> forest management in California, no doubt, or at least across the country. Let's shift for a moment towards DERs again, given that that's a big expertise of yours. So shifting to power outages caused not by demand exceeding supply, but by weather events continue to you know challenge the country, and especially in states like California. So talk to us, take us through... You know, especially with the hurricanes and the tropical storms, how are DERs able to come into play in these types of scenarios? So I'll start with the individual level, because I think that's the most potentially resonant and, and easy to picture. So imagine you are in the path of a hurricane. Ideally, you will have gotten out. But let's say that there is an emergency center or a community center that needs to serve those critical community functions immediately after a storm has passed through. In some occasions like these, emergency personnel and critical folks will stay on site and will hunker down so that they can help the community to recover. These types of facilities need energy on minute one as that hurricane has passed. So having a microgrid, a resilient microgrid, combined with some sort of community asset or emergency resilience asset can help to prevent challenges where even if you bought an emergency generator, the challenges with these generators is A, they are often not run regularly. So they often do not start correctly. B, they're very expensive on a per kilowatt hour basis to run. And C, you still have the logistical challenge of whatever fuel source you are using. So that means delivery of diesel or gasoline, or some sort of reliance on natural gas infrastructure. So there's obviously a variety of, of ways that you could use that. Hospitals could use a consistent microgrid, emergency response, as I already mentioned, government centers, all of these types of, of places on-site, pharmacies, places where um, retirement homes where there are ventilators is a major challenge. And actually one of the biggest causes of death in Puerto Rico after their hurricanes was actually uh, the lack of sustained power associated with ventilators and emergency equipment. So the longer those outages occur, the more vulnerable populations are put at risk. On the macro level, all of these assets can contribute to grid resilience and to help to provide additional capacity. They can help to provide voltage support. They can help to provide power smoothing services. As you have a battery out in the field, all of these technologies can be used for multiple purposes, and especially in non-emergency modes, they can provide all sorts of market-facing services that can generate revenue for the facility owner and for the property owner. And they can also provide those types of additional resilience and contribute to lower costs on the wholesale grid. Kyle, is there concern that DERs in any way make the parts of the grid that they're on somehow more vulnerable? And by that, I mean, if there's smaller assets that might be less protected from disasters or there's just more almost moving parts for something to go wrong, is, is that an issue in the DER space? Yeah, there's always trade-offs. <clears throat> what I would say is that a system that is based off of a lot of 
assets that are working together and reacting to things that are happening on the grid, if they're smart, they will ultimately be more resilient. So again, we need to provide those really clear incentives to say, hey, we need you to be able to react to things that are happening on the grid and to provide a really cyber secure and reliable means by which to get those reactions. So if you do that at scale, I would argue that is much more reliable and much more valuable than having a smaller number of large scale assets that are also vulnerable to these same types of attacks and, and, and fall, um, falling throughs. What we need to do is we need to provide really clear rules and structures that line up with this new reality of these new technologies, right? So there will always be trade-offs, but I believe that the future system one that's characterized by more resilient, more distributed technologies, I think that is ultimately a better situation than having fewer centralized assets. Kyle, I'm not sure if anyone would disagree with anything that you just said. However, if we're going to interconnect DER to the grid, then there's a lot that needs to be shored up at the grid edge to support that. So yes, DER is essential and we need to continue moving in that direction, but at the same time, we need to shore up the utilities at the grid edge to support the DER that's being added. So if you, if you don't mind, take a moment now to sit on the other side of the table. Do your best now to represent the other side, why this may not be the best approach to addressing our energy issues. Absolutely. That's a great question. And I regularly work with distribution and transition planning engineers who come to me and say, this is crazy. We've never done this. We shouldn't do this. It shouldn't happen. And I understand that. And much of that concern is based on uncertainty, right? It's the idea that I am an engineer. I do the calculations. And if I have a central generator that I can schedule to run from this time to this time, or that I can schedule an outage for maintenance from this time to this time, I know when that outage will occur. And I can be certain to schedule other assets to make up for it. So I understand that desire and priority for certainty, especially for such a critical service like energy, which empowers all the different parts of our life. That being said, we now have new technologies and a new reality. This is a new challenge that we're asking our utilities to meet. And ultimately, I believe that they should be paid to meet those challenges. And that's one of the biggest barriers to success. It's that at a structural level, both the CEO all the way down to the day-to-day -day asset manager or the day-to-day -day scheduler has very little incentive to promote DER, to promote clean energy, unless it's been built into their business model by the regulators in the past 10 to 20 years. So what I would argue is, if this is a big challenge, and I work with these engineers on a day-to-day -day basis, we should provide them a real incentive to do it and provide them a structure to do it. We began to regulate the utilities decades ago and gave them a premise of, if you provide electricity reliably to everyone, then we will pay you. That dynamic has now changed. We've electrified rural populations. We provide some of the lowest cost energy. We do it on an extremely reliable level. And we're now paying our utilities at about the same rate of return as we were 50 years ago. Now what we need to do is to ask them to meet the new challenge that society is facing, which is climate change, which is resilience. And in order to do that, we need to provide them incentives and a business model to achieve that goal. Doing anything less is unfair. 
Well, this has been a terrific conversation, Kyle, and I thank you for sharing your insight with us on today's episode of the podcast. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You can always reach Kyle through the Energy Central platform where he welcomes your questions and comments. And once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com and see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Mm-hmm.